0: As we continue our worship to the preaching of God's word, I first invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again um, for the privilege to meet. We ask that you would take your word and minister to our hearts, that we would hear your truth. The um, uh, grace that is extended to us in Christ alone would flood our souls, and um, we ask that you would hear our hearts and response back to you. Knowing that um, uh, our lives, although hidden in Christ, as those uh, uh, called by you, quickened by the Spirit and cleansed in Christ, we, as your people, still struggle with sin on this side of glory. So we we ask that you would hear our hearts, our desire to know you more fully, to walk in righteousness. We pray for strength and um, hungry hearts. Uh, for your word to inform our minds and fill our hearts and strengthen our souls and resolve our purpose uh, to know you more fully and to reflect your worth. And um, most of all, we long for intimacy with you, knowing that our sin is a hindrance to that reality. So hear our hearts cry to you as we confess and you teach us that it is good and right for our souls. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we return to the book of Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 27, Acts 24, verses 17 through 27, and the title of this morning's message is A Tale of Two Men, so if you'll look there with me beginning in verse 17, we'll read through uh, to the end of chapter 24, beginning in verse 17 and reading through to 27. Now, after several years, and this is Paul speaking, after several years, I came to bring alms to to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusations. If they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one statement, which I I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody, yet to have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, And wishing to do uh, the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, here we finally come to the climax, really, if you can call it that, of Paul's trial. And the climax of Paul's trial ends and really uh, no verdict at all. So we've looked at the accusation, we've looked at Paul's defense, and here Paul will kind of sum up that reality again, and we'll see when it comes time for the verdict, really Felix just kind of kicks the can down the road and prolongs it again, and ultimately prolongs the verdict until he is then replaced by Festus. And so what we have here in this last little section of this text, of this, of this trial of Paul before Felix, is a reminder of the purity of Paul. And so I don't want you to miss that. And we'll, um, we'll look at uh, really how, how Paul uh, uh, presents his case and what he builds that upon. And it speaks to his purity. And then we see um, really interlaced with that reality, the tragedy of Felix postponing the only appropriate response to the gospel call. That is repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is right before this man, and he just comes to the crest of that reality, pauses, and walks away, making the age-old statement, well, when the right time comes then I'll deal with the response to Christ. And we see the tragedy of that here. So now I want you to notice here, Felix in this text is in no means hostile towards the gospel. He's a vile man. We know that. We've looked at him. We've looked at his his bloody reign. He's a violent man. He's a greedy man. But he's not hostile, particularly to the gospel. He's well acquainted with it. He's been in this area for nine years. There's lots of Christians in this area. Lots of Christians there in in, in his region. So he's familiar with this. And he's not hostile. Actually, he's far worse. His response or his relationship with the gospel at this point, when we catch him, Human history is far worse than that of being hostile to the gospel. He's outwardly comfortable with it. He appears to be open to the gospel, yet content to put off the gospel for a more opportune time. And there is no worse position for a man to ever be in than the one we find Felix in to be comfortable with it to a degree somewhere on the surface and always content to just put it off to the right time comes along. So here in context, Felix is responsible for judging this case against Paul. And this is a really a, a also layered in here is this, responsibility to respond personally to the decision concerning hope in Christ alone. He has a decision to make based on uh, on what uh, he sees regarding Paul and an accusation made against him that is supposedly a criminal act according to Roman law. And then interlaced with this is the reality that he is now faced with a decision for Christ concerning the reality of who Christ is. What he has done, and the proper response to that reality. So these things are all now coming uh, 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 into uh, this flashpoint of his giving the verdict, and we'll see how he does so. So remember, Paul has now been in Felix's house or, or his uh, his residence there for two years, and in these two years. Being there in Caesarea, that's this period of time that that Felix has reigned there. He's very familiar with the gospel. Philip the Evangelist and many other Christians are there. He's heard the gospel. He understands the way. And again, he's been in in the whole region for nine years. So this is not something that's unfamiliar to Felix. And now Paul is before him. Why? Because he's been accused of crime against Rome, right? Insurrection, stirring up dissension with Jews all over the world, but primarily stirring up dissension against Rome, to thwart Rome, to cause a a coup. He's also been accused of a crime against Israel. He's referred to as a ringleader of a sect, so he's this uh, um, kind of instigator and this, this leader of this obscure, crazy sect. That's just ready to stir up trouble there with Rome. And also, ultimately, he's accused of a crime against God and that he tried to, to desecrate the temple. Now, note there the accusation is that he tried. Now, why, does it, why is it put that way? They said that he tried to desecrate the temple. Well, they didn't have any witnesses, right? There's no eyewitnesses to all these accusations, particularly the accusation of Paul desecrating the temple. There's no eyewitnesses. There's just accusations. And now the Sanhedrin brings their lawyer, uh, the the high priest and some of the Sanhedrin bring their their, uh, hotshot lawyer in uh, before Felix and make these accusations, which they have just heard from Jewish leaders from Asia probably Ephesus. They're not even at the trial. So this is secondhand accusations and no eyewitnesses. Pretty shady deal, actually. And so up front, before we kind of look more specifically at the purity of Paul, I want you to just take this note and just hold this this morning, mark this down, just settle it into your hearts. Christians will always have to face False accusations. That's what you're looking at right here. Paul is falsely accused. It's false on its face. He's, he's really being accused because he's a follower of Christ. There's no criminal actions here against wrong. They're trumped up charges. Everybody knows. The problem here is that Paul is a follower of Christ. And the same is true of us. And so there's nothing new under the sun here. You, If you are a follower of Christ, you are going to be falsely accused for your faith. You're a problem. And it's just coming our way. So just settle it into your souls. Let me bring you back to Matthew 10, 16 through 18. Now, again, this is language here that really pertains specifically to the apostles in their unique time. So it's unique to them in some degree, but it's principally true for us as well. And listen here to the language of Matthew 10, 16 through 18. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Sound familiar? Now, Paul was certainly about to be scourged, not in the synagogue, but they did do that. Specifically, the Jewish leaders would also scourge, and they would do that in the synagogues. But what is he to beware of? Men. What are we to beware of? Men that will turn us over to the courts. Now, again, the language here has some specific, specific uh, uh, um, uh, elements to it that refer just to the apostles at that time. But again, in principle, it's true for us. And he says, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So we too are to be wise, careful, witty, and blameless. And that's where Paul takes his stand. Whatever they say about him, the all, whatever the accusations are, Paul first comes back and says, I am blameless. My life has been lived out blameless before you. I'm not guilty of these accusations. And beyond that, I've lived a blameless life before you. And that should be our heart's cry to God, that we too, God would give us strength. Oh, Lord, that you would give us strength to be blameless before the culture around us. Whatever accusations may come our way, that we truly stand and act in word and deed blameless before a culture. And expect to be ridiculed. Expect to be viewed as narrow-minded and outdated. That's also true. I was talking... Uh, to Daniel after the lesson uh, this morning, the, Bible, the, the morning Bible study, and I, I was telling Daniel, I kind of like uh, David's quick impromptu of, of uh, the insanity there. You know, lots of issues there in that, in that particular um, scenario, but I kind of like that. Look, we have to be wise. We have to be careful. We have to be witty. We have to keep our wits about us. But most of all be blameless. you're going to be falsely accused and let me just say this you're also going to be labeled we find that in our culture there's going to be false accusations about us but there's kind of just you're living in kind of an understand there's a, there's a, there's an understanding in this culture a false understanding a false uh, assumption about bible believing christians and so you're labeled so to speak now again Uh, We're not supposed to label people. That's just a big no-no in our culture, but that doesn't go for you. You're the exception. It's fine for you to be labeled. And you're going to be labeled, again, as narrow-minded, outdated, old-fashioned. Why? Because you believe the Bible. So just settle that into your hearts as well. My goodness, you believe that God literally Created all things? You believe creation? You believe the creation story? Well, you're just a narrow-minded, foolish person. So they're gonna come up to you and you're gonna say, you know, you're kidding me? Do you believe that this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing God figure created everything that is that exists and did it in a week, and you're going to say back to them, absolutely not. He did it in six days and took his last day off. He's just that glorious. That's our answer. That's our response. The culture's going to come at you and you say, I'm going to say that you believe in gender binaries that's just narrow-minded, bigoted, and absurd. But the Bible says that we are created what? Male and female. And so the, the the winds of our time just they don't pass the eye test, do they? I mean, look, I was there for when my wife gave birth to all my children. And when they come out, you know, I can just I can see the plumbing. It's right there. And I, you know, I've changed a lot of diapers in my day. And you just, you know, you change the diaper and the plumbing's there. God created us male and female. And how we choose to identify is not trump God's creative order. My goodness, even roles for men and women within the body of Christ. Are now frowned upon from the outside as foolish, narrow-minded, and outdated. How dare us? Have roles, standards set apart by set, set, set set by standards of scripture. How dare us? But scripture is plain, right? What does 1 Timothy uh, uh, 212 tell us about the roles of men and women? Women are not. To teach or have authority over a man. Are they not? Well, that just flies in the face of the whims of our culture. But that's exactly what scripture tells us. So these things are always going to face us. They're always going to be there. We're always going to face these kind of accusations. And Luke 6.22 tells us, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn Your name as evil. Why? For the sake of the Son of Man. This is just always going to be true of us. And so with that in mind, I want to bring you to the purity of Paul in verses 17 through 21. Now, let me back you up to verse 16 there and listen to Paul just set a standard here. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the, before the accused meet his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense, right? And so what we're looking at here is this reality of Paul taking his stand and declaring himself, to be innocent, declaring himself to be pure before them. His accusers had accused uh, uh, Paul falsely, and Felix knew it. When they come in, and they start to butter up Felix. Felix knows that's not the kind of man he is, right? Felix knows that's not his character, right? They know that it's not his character, but they butter him up anyway. So they start out lying, and they start out lying, and Felix is aware that they're lying. So he's looking at them. They're going to make a case against Paul, and he knows they're liars from the get-go because he knows he's not all these things they're buttering him up to be. And then they make accusations against Paul. You know what? It's a fallen world, and evil men are exalted in our world, and we just have to understand this. Our world will continue to exalt evil men. They boast of Felix falsely and they accuse Paul falsely. Let me bring you back to verse 12. Okay, look there with me for just a moment. Paul said to them in verse 12, neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. So there Paul brought them back to, hey, look, I was there in the temple. Most of my time in Jerusalem was spent in the temple. I was purified. I was in a ceremony. I was in the midst of, uh, uh, of participating in a ceremony. They found me in the temple. I wasn't out stirring up a riot. I had barely talked to anyone. There was no time to stir up a riot. And Paul says, They have no witnesses. I'm the consistent Jew. I'm there bringing alms. I'm there worshiping. I'm there bringing money to care for the needy there in Jerusalem. I'm uh, uh, there completing the reality of being a follower of Christ, which is, the, which is what all of Judaism points to. They're the sick. I'm not the sect. I'm a consistent Jew. Jesus is the promised Messiah. They're the false teachers, and so he has this background, and then beginning in verse 17, he just kind of, again, gives his motive. Look, I'm there participating in the ceremony. I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, I'm, I'm ahead of myself here, sorry. Excuse me, let me back up a little bit to 17, I'm on the wrong page. Hold that. Now, after, se- after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, and to present offerings. And the alms are the offerings. So that's why he's there. He says, that's what I was doing. I wasn't there stirring up any riot at all. I came to care for the needy. But here's what happened in verse 18. They found me in the temple, having been purified without any crowd being up, uh, without any uproar within the crowd, but there were some Jews from Asia. Now here again, religious leaders from Ephesus from Jews from Asia, that then they are the ones that begin to stir this thing up. Verse 19, who ought to have been present here before you to make this accusation. There's the witnesses. He says, the witnesses are far away. If there's any accusation made about me, it should be with them. And by the way, they have no accusations to make. They found me in the temple participating in a ceremony, not stirring up a riot. He certainly did not desecrate the temple. There was no time to desecrate the temple. But what's happening here is these religious leaders are threatened by Paul, this minister of the gospel. He's threatening their power and their authority, and they want them dead. So they want wrong to do their bidding. So Paul says no eyewitnesses, no real crime. Now, verse 20 tells us something very interesting. So Paul says, look, if they have they don't have anything against me or else, if, if that's the case, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeeds they have found when I stood before them in the council. So bring them here and let them testify. Now, this tells Felix certainly, for sure, if you ever had any doubt, this tells Felix, look, they're lying. There are no eyewitnesses. There, there is no charge of any kind of... A violation of, of Roman law. This is a theological matter. And does Felix understand the way? Does he know the teachings of the way? Yes, he does. So we understand, Felix understands right away this is theological. This is not criminal. He knew the issue was a theological matter. And Paul says, bring witnesses. Bring them here to this court so that they can prove to you that there's a criminal act, a breaking of Roman law, and they can't do it. There was none. But Paul goes on. He's very clever here. He says in verse 21, other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you. And then he just, so there's the final nail in his accusation of false, uh, of a false accusation against him. Yes. Yes. I did stir up a little trouble with them. It was a theological issue. I did say for the resurrection of the dead. Now that set them off, right? Or at least part of them, because part of the Sanhedrin did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's the liberal crowd. The more conservative crowd among the Sanhedrin did. He was able, even before Paul was able to kind of drive a wedge between them. One thing they had in common, they wanted Paul out of the way because he was a problem for them and their authority and their power. But then they did have this little theological squabble. So Paul wisely brings this back up again. And again, we must be wise and witty and sharp. We're going to be falsely accused. And Paul uh, uh, does a very good job here. One, he proves he's innocent. And two, he does bring up The matter to Felix, say, look, this is theological. There's no criminal charge here that you can prosecute uh, according to Roman law. And Felix was aware, aware, aware of this reality. So here, Paul kind of proves his point. And Felix knows it, but he does that again, predicated on his purity. I am pure before you. So there's nothing for Felix to do legally, nothing for him to rule on. And the central reality here is this. Paul points out this is a theological matter. He brings that out and he reminds them that his conscience is blameless. He's blameless before God and man. So that's what he builds his case on. Look, I'm here blameless before God and man. You can look into my life. Examine this. You know full well this is a theological matter. You know I brought the reality of the way to them, and they didn't like it. I spoke of the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of Christ, the promised Messiah, and his resurrection. Now there is full authority in Christ. He is who he said he is. He is the Son of God who became the Son of Man, that we might have hope and forgiveness and his atoning work. On the cross, He is the resurrected one, validating all that He said about Himself, and securing a promise that faith in Him alone justifies one before a holy God. So there's the promise, I or, or there's there's the claim: I am pure before You, my life is pristine before You, I am guiltless before You. And the accusation is fault. I have tried to have a clean conscience before God and man, and He's displayed that. So His life is on display here. The purity of Paul is on display, and He brings them to that point, or He brings Philip uh, to that point. Okay, you have nothing to rule on, but there is this little matter of the way and the resurrection of Christ. So the central reality, and it kind of it kind of just fizzles out. And then we have this big, this big to-do, this big deal where the, 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 the high priest comes down, he brings the hot shot lawyer. he brings part of the Sanhedrin down. They, they they come out and they come and they bring Paul before the governor. So you must rule on this man. So there's this is this big to-do, this big trial, all these accusations. My goodness, you know, he's, he's a dissenter from Rome. He's this, uh, this uh, leader of this crazy sect. You know, he's defiling the temple. This guy's got to be dealt with. These are crimes punishable by death. He's going to stir up a riot here. He's going he's to cause a problem for Rome. This is a big issue. And Felix knows from the beginning it's bogus. And now Paul brings it right to his doorstep. He says you know it's theological. There's no crime here, and so a verdict must be rendered here. And Paul builds all this on his blameless life, and the trial just kind of fizzles out. That's that's really that's the last we hear of this big grand trial before Felix. And it just kind of fizzles away from there. So what are we left to take with from the trial? All this buildup. Well, don't miss the obvious. Paul comes out blameless. The accusations are going to come to you. The false accusations are always going to come to you. You're going to get them just because you're a follower of Christ. That's why. That's why they're going to accuse you. They're going to perceive you with all kinds of unvalidated concepts. They're going to see you as narrow-minded and bigoted and hateful. All that's going to come your way. And in response, may you and I, may we be flames before men. May that also be true of us. Well, the grand trial kind of fizzles out, but it allows us to see the foolishness of Felix. So now we see, we've seen the purity of Paul and we've seen it backed up with his life. Now let's see the foolishness of Felix, beginning there in verse 22. Well, Felix having... A more exact knowledge of the way. Again, very familiar with the claims of Christians. He put them off saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Now, he's lying because he's not going to decide. the case. That's the last thing he's going to do. He's not going to decide the case because he's stuck in a dilemma here, right? He knows Paul's innocent. He knows it is a theological matter. He understands the way. He knows the claims. He knows the religious leaders are lying to him. They said he was a nice guy. Look, he knows he's not a nice guy. He's a bad guy, but he's not delusional. He knows they're lying. But he has the limb on his hands. He has an innocent man. And again, Paul's a Roman citizen, right? So Paul has rights. If he kills an innocent man, that can come back on him because Paul's a Roman citizen. But at the same time, he has these religious leaders, the Jewish community, and they are upset and they can cause him lots of problems politically. And they kind of, they've already uh, uh, had a long history with Felix and they've kind of, Uh, backed him into a corner before with issues like this. So if he doesn't bend to their ways, they can cause him lots of problems, political problems. He doesn't need a real riot on his hands. So Felix, being the great leader that he is, responds how? He just puts it off. So he makes uh, a decision, which is really no decision at all. He just puts it off. He delays. And he lies to them. He says, when Lysias, the commander comes down, I will decide this case. Now, there's no record in history of Felix ever sending for Lysias. We just don't have that. And why would we? He never did. He had no intention of bringing license down. He had no intention of hearing in this case. He had no intention of deciding on this because either way, it could have been problematic for him. So he just tries to to, he just tries to slide by and play the middle ground. They lied. They purged themselves in court. They lied about Felix. They lied about Paul. They lied about themselves. And these religious leaders lied about the case. And notice this, during Paul's own defense of himself, which was beautiful, by the way. Beautiful. And again, it's built on his purity, his blamelessness. They never interjected, did they? I mean, they're, they're liars. They could have found some reason to interject, something to say, but they're just so dumbfounded by the majesty of Paul. They don't even say anything. They're just listening to Paul. They never even interject. I just marvel at that because that's what they're there to do. Any little thing, they're going to interject and try to bring this thing up and turn this thing and twist this tail. But as Paul responds, it's so crystal clear. It's so precise. It's so short and condensed and straightforward. They don't, even, they don't even have a response. They never interject. They just sit there and listen to Paul all the way through. And he closes it out. He says, my life that I have lived stands as my testimony. And that's the way we want to be. That's the way we want it. Come what may, whatever accusations they throw at us, let our lives truly tell the tale. So here's the dilemma. And, man, don't forget about Pilate, right? You think Felix was uh, maybe Pilate had crossed his mind during all this? Yeah, of course, man. They had, see, this is exactly how they had Pilate. This is exactly how Pilate got into his situation. So Felix said, like, you know, that's not going to happen to me. I'm just going to kick this can down the road. So it takes the path of compromise, right? It's a sad, all too familiar response, is it not? My goodness, they can accuse us of many things, but what should they never be able to accuse us of? Compromise. We're Christians. We cannot be a compromised people, and Paul would not be. Felix is happy to be a compromised man. Paul will never be compromised, nor can we. Oh, sure. In, in, our, in, our, own, in our own flesh, are we, are we too frail for that? Of course we are. Of course. This is no motivational speech here. I'm talking about what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ, Oh, that God would make us into men and women who will not compromise for his glory. That's our calling. That's the power of the Spirit that indwells us. That's our testimony. That's our blamelessness before man. Oh, then it would be true of us. So here we have a compromised governor and a pure and passionate preacher. And they contrast one another drastically. Now, the text tells us there in verse 22 that he was very familiar with the way. having a more exact knowledge. That's very very precise language. He knew the ins and outs of the gospel. He knew about it. So if he knew about it, and Paul, very wisely with his comment about the resurrection, reminded Felix of this. If he knew about really what was going on here, the theological wranglings that were really uh, bringing about these false accusations, did he have enough information to judge rightly in this case. Well, he certainly did. He had enough information. He could have judged rightly. He knew the right answer, but he never made a rule, and he never called for Lysias. He just put it off. He took the coward's way out. So this is a cowardly response by Felix. And again, he understood the theological claims of the way. He just did not want the ramifications that could come to him by doing the right thing. And so here we have the contrast. Here we have the Christian man who longs to be pure no matter what comes his way, no matter what the consequences. And here we have a worldly man who is trying to... To wrangle his way through and find some kind of middle ground ground to to, to avoid consequences that might be contrary to the comforts he hopes to secure for himself. Regardless of his character. To tell two men, two polar opposites. or that we would learn from Felix what not to do and that we would learn from Paul what to do. As these kind of circumstances Surely come our way, specifically the false accusations and the stereotypes that will come to us. So he knew the Sanhedrin was lying, but he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. So he made a political decision, which is a non-decision. Look there in verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept, him that being Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Now this is pretty cool. So he, he's, he's places Paul under the custody of a centurion. So uh, uh, this is a, a Roman officer that, that is, uh, that is, uh, has authority over a hundred men. So uh, a high officer is now has this one responsibility to kind of keep Paul in this sort of uh, uh, prison light. You know, this is, yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a real classic house arrest right here. So this is um, minimum security in the ancient world. And it's cool there, it says that he could have friends, and his friends could come there and minister to him. Because you wonder, I'm, at some point, I, you know, Paul was just on this tear. And now he's sitting, you know, maybe from the surface, from, from our view, I think he's sitting kind of idle. If we if we look at what he's been doing, if you look at how God has been using him, and sometimes we do that, right? We just look at the, you know, we see the surface. Although Paul, it's obvious it was grand ministry. It's obvious it was great power of God. It's obvious it was effective. But we, you know, we just, we never, we can't just peel back all the layers of God's sovereignty in this. And so when we see this, here's Paul just been on this this monumental tear. And now God, God has him on the sidelines, if you will. Two years. And, I, you know, and maybe it's good for Paul to come up for air a little bit. I can't. He just, his, his whole personality just seems like he would be just restless. Uh, but, but certainly trusting in the Lord. And then there's this beautiful thing, though. I, I don't know if it was refreshing for Paul in any way. I'm not sure. You know, he's such a go-getter, and now he's just kind of, he seems like he's put on the shelf. But then we see this beautiful picture. At least we get a little glimpse of one glorious thing that we can hold on to as we think about Paul being just now uh, kind of shut down two years. We know God has talked to him. We we know Christ has met with him. We know that he is, he's going to Rome. He knows he's going to Rome. He's going to Rome as a prisoner and and there's limited freedom, but he's going. Yet here we see this, this, we had this beautiful little moment. uh, And it's just, Amazing language here in this verse, that his friends there in verse in verse 23, his friends were free to come and minister to him. And that speaks volumes about the body of Christ. So he has a little minister of security in that the friends are allowed in. Here a hard charging Paul is now shut down, but here's the body of Christ. Here's a picture of the care shared within the body of Christ. Now the great minister is forced to sit on the sidelines, but yet God so works it out that his friends can come and minister to him and care for him and encourage him in this situation. So a beautiful picture there. All the while, the verdict is never rendered. The trial just fades away. So, again, the main point is that Paul was above reproach. That's what we want to hold on to here. No matter what the accusations of him, he was above reproach. He's a picture of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. And that we want to lay hold of and beg God to make it true of us when the accusations come our way. Because, dear brethren, they're coming. They're coming your way. And all this will be true of us as well. That we'll be above reproach. We're going to be wrongly accused and we need to have a clean conscience in those circumstances. We are to be holy in those circumstances. So the accusations must be false. God assures us that they're coming but our lives that we're building day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us to the glory of God. We're doing so that when they come, they must be false. And So, you know, it's, it's inevitable for them to come. But our heart's desire is that when they do, they're obviously false. Now, will that stop them? No. But everybody on the everybody here, That saw, that looked in on the situation. It was very public. This was the big deal. And everybody that looked in, with all their bias, when they really looked in, their hearts, their eyes, knew the truth. Paul always passes the eye test. That's the beauty. I look at gender. I look at the plumbing, and my eyes tell me the truth. My culture tells me a lie. But my eyes tell me the truth. Paul's life always tells the truth. It passes the eye test. The same should be of us. Oh, that it would be true of us as well. So there's a little bonus there, Paul. Just just had a little opportunity with his brothers for two years. You know, What, what a glorious thing. And then in verse 24, it says, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, uh, a Jewess, <clears throat> and sent for Paul and heard him sp- uh, 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 speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's very specific. In other words, he gave them the gospel. Okay. They've heard it before, but he gave it to them again. And, if we, you know, we just kind of have, have a feeling that Paul is uh, going to give a pretty clear uh, gospel presentation, right? You know, it's going it's to be pretty clear, pretty, pretty sharp. So he gives them the gospel. That's what's being stated here when it says that he speaks to them about faith. That's the faith. Not about necessarily uh, one trusting in Christ, but he speaks to them about the faith that is uh, the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Certainly there's a call to repentance that's part of that, but he speaks to the faith. Okay? In other words, who Jesus is, what he came to do, son of God, son of man born of a virgin, lived a perfect life under the law of God, and died a vicarious, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross for all who repent and believe on him. He gave, them, he gave Felix a clear gospel presentation. He defined for him clearly what it means to understand and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he called them to repentance, both of them, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who, by the way, is was apparently quite a she's a teenager and quite a beauty, but uh, she was another man's wife, Um, and Felix took her. She was the wife of a king from Syria, one of the regions in Syria, and Felix seduced her and made her his wife. Now, why did he do that? Political. It could have been, yes. Uh, but I, I, I'll go a little just deeper below the surface with you, brother. He did it because he wanted to. He did it. Go ahead. Let's let's use the language of our culture. He did it because he felt like it. It felt right to him, so he did it. And so here's Paul standing before Felix, telling him about the faith. In other words, this is who Christ is. This is why he came. This is your demanded response. And all the while, Felix is standing there with his stolen teenage bride. Nice picture, right? That's the goodness of God. That's a a ripe scenario for some serious conviction. Yes, Felix saw her, wanted her, and took her because it felt right to him. And by the way, this is very important for us in our culture. How we feel is just not the objective standard for our behavior. We're not autonomous, we don't have final authority. God is our standard, God is our authority. And our decisions must rightly be based on his moral standard. And that's what Paul brings to Felix here. This is an immoral act of them two just being there together to hear the gospel, but they call him in. And so he speaks to them about the gospel, the content of the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ and the facts of the gospel, what Jesus has accomplished in his substitutionary atoning death. Verse 25, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. Literally, he began to tremble, and he said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Righteousness, self-control. And the judgment to come. That's the content of the faith right there. So what is righteousness? What is he talking about there? God's design. Righteousness is God's design. It's God's demand of absolute righteousness. That's what God demands. He demands absolute righteousness of us. Be holy, for I am holy. And what is our, what is our, our response there? What is our self-control? We are required to respond to his demand of Holiness. To conform to his standards. Our self-control is our response to his demand of righteousness. Now, judgment is this. Conform to God's standard of perfect righteousness or be judged. So Paul makes it personal here for Felix. Again, who's standing there with his stolen bride. This is the way that we too are to evangelize. Right here we see a beautiful picture of what it means to evangelize. Who is Christ? What did he do? What is our response to the person and work of Christ? Well, we are to be righteous. Can we do that? No. If we don't, we're guilty. Well, since we cannot be righteous before God as God intends for us, then we are guilty. What do we do about our gift? We repent and believe on Christ. John 16 8. And he and he, but he comes, will convict well I was talking about, about the spirit of God, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There it is. So Felix hears this and he trembles. He has conviction. But then what does he do with that conviction? He hears the truth about Christ. He understands his response, the call of the gospel to respond to God's commandment of righteousness. He knows that he cannot because in the same boat as the rest of us, all of us have sinned. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. This is the picture of God's command for the gospel on sinful man. So he sees that. He knows there is a judgment to come as part of our evangelism. He cannot truly evangelize the need for a Savior if there's not a reality of the judgment that comes from God in light of our sinfulness and our uh, inability to respond to God's commandment of righteousness on our lives. So judgment is a loving part of our evangelism. And you see Paul exercising that right here. And we see this man is convicted clearly. And then he does respond. He says, There, this tragic words go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. I'll call for you. Just leave me be for this is a man who's trembling with conviction. Just leave me be for now. And when it's convenient, I'll call for you. But here's the reality. He never called. He never called. And here's the application for us as we call people to the gospel, as we have friends, family that are outside the faith, as we share the gospel. Here's a reality to the gospel call that we must know. We must have an urgency for. The longer one puts it off, the harder the heart becomes towards the gospel. That is a truth we must know in our urgency of carrying it. Call for repentance and faith. If one keeps resisting the gospel call, the heart will grow harder towards the gospel. Harder and colder towards the gospel. Today is a day of salvation. Call on him while he is near. This is the language of scripture. Procrastination is a broad road to hell. Hanging around the gospel, seemingly comfortable with the gospel, but not committed to the gospel. That is the absolute worst place a human being can find him or her self. This kind of behavior leads to a false sense of security. And that's what we must warn others against. It's better, again, it's better to be hostile to the gospel than to fool yourself in the deceitfulness of sin. And believe that you will someday do what you will not do. You'll continue to put it off. Now is the time. There's a fool who procrastinates concerning the gospel our call must be urgent it must be urgent and persistent for this is a picture of a fool in felix who procrastinates i'll call you again go away for now i'll call you when the time is appropriate and now look what he does verse 26 at the same time too he was hoping that money would be given to him by paul So there's his heart, right? He's convicted. He's convicted to the point of trembling. But what's really in the depths of his heart? You know what? I know what Paul is saying is true. I know there's there's a time that I should repent. But right now, I just can't get over the fact that this rascal won't bribe me. All he's got to do is give me a little bit of money if we could just get past that boundary, if he cares so much about my soul, if he wants me to know that this is the way and the truth and there's, there's no other hook me outside of Christ, if he really uh, uh, believes that I need to know this and I need to repent and follow Christ, why won't he give me my respect? My gracious, he collected money all over the Gentile world and brought it into Jerusalem. He surely stuffs them away for himself for a time like this. Where's the money? Show me the money. This darkened heart stays right there. Paul, you need to bribe me, buddy, and I'll cut you loose. And then the convenient time will come to talk about this gospel thing. Don't you get it, Paul? Deal with the money. Deal with what's really at stake here. And then we can get to the lesser matters of my soul, therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. So we bring him back in from time to time. You know, the money. This could all be over, Paul. We could just sell this thing. You know, and then we might be able to get to that gospel. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by uh, Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor. There again, all the way to the end, all the way till he's out of office, try to protect himself for the next position. He left Paul in prison. So Felix waited for that bribe and it never came. And he sent for Paul over and over. And Paul never paid him. And there was no convenient time for the gospel. And Felix just kept looking for the money then Festus replaced him and Paul's still sitting in jail and a sad story of Felix passes off the page and there was no convenient time Hebrews ten twenty six. for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin at some point God no longer tarries Today is the day. Do not harden your heart. Come all the way to Christ. Let that be a lesson to us as we go forth and carry the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the sobering reminder of Felix, a man who was quite knowledgeable of the gospel, quite comfortable with the gospel at a, at a safe distance, and um, quite prepared in his own uh, sinful mind to someday find a convenient time to respond rightly to the gospel command. That time never came. I pray that was so, us. I pray we'd find uh, uh, the purity of Paul here convicting and, and um, desirous for our hearts. I pray we'd find the clarity of uh, of evangelism uh, in, in the message here, the clear proclamation of the faith that would stir our hearts and the urgency to go forth and call for a response and to always know that there is never an opportune time that is somehow convenient in the future. That's a fool's game and that we must carry it with faithfulness and urgency pleading with men to respond, to repent, and believe on Christ. Give us strength. Grant us wisdom. Grant us a winsome approach. Give us the capacity to be um, wise and harmless and blameless and faithful to the gospel. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.